please do so, so we know um, which show food to buy. And um, I think there was an announcement that came out about the differences in how we'll run the, uh, the picnic, so uh, please, uh, please look for that as well. So now let's uh, call ourselves to worship. Now this is a time where you know, we set aside cares from outside uh, and we focus on uh, what we're here to do, which is to worship the Lord. So uh, got it up behind me. Um, today's call, call uh, to worship comes from Psalm 118, uh, verses 22 to 29. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. Another beautiful day that you've blessed us with, a day that we can come together, uh, either in person or online, to worship you for who you are and what you've done. We ask, Father, that you would uh, have your spirit enable us to worship uh, you in spirit and in truth, for we know we need uh, your help to do that. We thank you for all things, and we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please stand and we'll
so um after i got back to my seat i realized that i had forgotten a couple things a lot of practice from not having been up here in a while so first let me introduce myself my name is ron clifton i am one of the elders here and uh just wanted to remind everybody that at the end of the service to stay seated and we will um, dismiss you in sections uh, i believe there will be a map or something up there do you want it we don't have to do it right now but later so uh will be dismissed by sections and the offering boxes are at the exit door so please uh i'll put your tithes and offerings there so let's uh let's now uh uh, move on to our prayer time and uh, again we're going to uh, pray through this responsibly um, we'll say the uh, verse together at the beginning and at the end and then uh, i'll read uh, the prayer and, and you can responsibly answer so um, let's begin in uh, from june uh, 1 1 b through 2 to those, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. All right, let's pray. Merciful Father, you have taught us your holy word, that you do not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Look with kindness upon the sorrows and needs of these facing suffering, grief, and loss at this time. Remember them in mercy. Nourish their souls with patience. Comfort them with a sense of your goodness. Lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace and wholeness. Lord, Lord hear our prayer. Saving God, who has promised that you would be with your people to the end of the world, we pray on behalf of your church globally, this congregation, and for our sister PCA churches in Northern Virginia. Inhabit and bless the worship services in person and online of Capital PCA in Fairfax, Harvester PCA in Springfield, and Christ PCA in Burke. Lord, hear our prayer. Sovereign God, give us the ability to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Since certain people have crept in unnoticed who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And by your gracious aid, may we build ourselves up in, in our most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt and show mercy to others who fear. Lord, Lord hear our prayer. Creator God, who made us in your own image and made every nation and people to live on the earth, on the face of the earth, having determined periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek you and perhaps feel their way toward you and find you, though you are actually not far from each one of us. See the conflicts raging in our country and hear the cries of those calling out for what is just and righteous. Lord, hear our prayer. We acknowledge, even if grudgingly at times, 
that there are legitimate claims of wrongdoings and wrongs done. Assist us to get better at bringing liberty and justice for all, regardless of bloodline, borough, wealth, or worth. Further, Lord, make us a nation that is truly e pluribus unum, from the many one. Heal our nation, help each of us treat others, even people different from us, with equity and calm. May our neighbors, irrespective of their ethnicity or economy, feel safe with us and feel treated with dignity by us. Lord, hear our prayer. O God, all of our spoken and unspoken requests we present to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. All right, now let's uh, turn to uh, confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Please take a few moments to silently confess your sin, and then we will read uh, the public confession together. So let's uh, read the public confession, and it is up there. All right. Almighty, Almighty and merciful Father, you have called us to be your people and have made us one body. Yet we have not lived like we are one body. We have not loved one another as we ought. Selfish ambition has gripped us, and we have failed to look out for others' interests above our own. Conceit has gripped us, and we have failed to associate with and care for those who are different from ourselves. We have not treated one another as those in whom Christ dwells. Forgive us for our offenses against you, and go on to subdue everything in us that is contrary to your purposes. By the power of your Spirit, make us a community that shows forth your acceptance kindness and love through christ our lord amen hear the assurance of pardon from hebrews chapter 7. for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sin and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself at this time we can rise we'll sing we can rise we'll sing our doxology to the lord today we'll be singing the first verse of the chorus to god be the glory Oh, Lord. 
Good to see everybody. Good to be here. So we missed you last weekend. Everybody hear me okay? No. No? I'm going to have to watch you, aren't I? Okay. So anyway, we're glad you're here. We are back in the book of Mark. We have taken a couple weeks to talk about regathering together and the purpose of that and the value of community and the value of gathering and the value of worship. Uh, But we have now returned to our series on Mark and we are in Mark chapter, the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. Um, We do post on uh, our website uh, um, the sermon outline, normally the bulletin insert that you get. If you would like that, you'll need to print that out and bring it with you. So those of you at home, you can go print that out if you need it. Uh, But it is available to you. want you to know that. So let's look at our scripture for today. And uh, we're in Mark 11, 27 through 12, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But we shall say from man, They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. 
Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning simply to help us to understand this hard parable and to apply it to our lives. Help us to consider how the hard words of Jesus motivate us to follow Jesus. We ask you to give us the grace to understand this parable, to see ourselves in it, to learn its lessons and apply them to our lives. Help us to consider what it means to follow you in faith and repentance. Thank you that today we're learning once again from John Mark, a follower of Jesus as he brings us the earliest eyewitness account of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Mark this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. So I realized uh, this week that uh, one of my stories would be a good introduction to this message. However, I have shared this story twice before. So to those of you who were here in November of 2002, I don't think there's very many of you, or May of 2014, sorry, but you're going to have to hear it again. So anyway, the story comes from when I commanded a basic training company at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, back in the mid-80s. One night, my company was on a live fire exercise where you low crawled on your bellies through this range while machine guns were fired over your head. And just to make things interesting, there were demolition pits on the course surrounded by concertina wire, which is like barbed wire, and these demo pits would explode every few minutes. Now, the machine guns were set on towers and fired about 12 to 15 feet over your head, so you weren't in any real danger. But in the middle of the night, we ran this range usually around 2, 3 in the morning when it was the most dark, and your depth perception is not that great in the dark. And so when you saw the tracers fly by, you would swear they were mere inches away. And so your adrenaline levels were up, the noise from the machine gun fire was deafening, there's explosions going off, and you're pushing and yelling at everyone to keep moving and to get through the course. And mostly you don't want anybody to just freeze and get stuck out there. You don't want them to lose their equipment or leave their weapon on the course and then have to go back and get them. So you watched everyone and you yelled at everyone and you pushed everyone to get through. And when you finished the course, there was this big trench at the end that everyone sort of flopped into. And then the platoon sergeants and the squad leaders would go around and check everyone out, make sure they were all okay, and even more importantly, make sure they had all their equipment. So I'm one of the last ones to clear the range and to get down in the trench. And I'm walking down the line, checking to make sure everything's getting done. And I look way down at the end of the trench, maybe 30 yards away, and there's these two soldiers sitting up on the side of the trench, you know, with their legs hanging down into the trench. This is not a good thing. So I yell down there, what are you doing? Your drill sergeant said get down in the trench, so you had best get down in the trench. And so both guys jump down into the trench. And I walk down there, and I'm thinking, who are these guys? And I'm ready to rip into them. And just as I get to them, I realize they're not my troops. 
It was the battalion commander, a lieutenant colonel, and the brigade commander, a full colonel. And I'm sure they're thinking, who is this guy? And now I'm thinking, I'm a dead man. And so I just stopped. And I hear the brigade commander say, Evening, David. We're down in the trench. <laughs> Fortunately for me, uh, they both thought it was pretty funny. You see, I thought I was the authority in that situation until I came upon another with real authority far beyond my own. In case you're wondering, colonels have way more authority than captains do. So here in Mark 11, we're coming across a similar situation. There is a group of people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they think they're the authority. So they challenge the authority of another, Jesus, because they fail to recognize the real authority that he has and the real authority that he is. And so just as Jesus turned the tables in the temple, now he turns the tables on his accusers. So let's turn back to our text this morning, Mark 11, starting at verse 27, where we see the challenge is reversed. The challenge is reversed. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do that? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Now this is a common debate technique in the ancient Near East. You're asked a question, it's common to respond with a question and sort of go back and forth. So he's not being rude or arrogant or anything. This is just a common technique of a debate at the time. So picking up again, verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So if you remember, Jesus has now come to Jerusalem. He's this, we're in the last week of his life. He's rode into town on a colt with this crowd following, covering his path with palm branches and cloaks. And as he passed, they shouted praises to him. And as he came into Jerusalem, he gave people an opportunity to see that he was coming as king and that one day he would be coming again as king. And then he chased the men, selling animals and changing money out of the temple and he set up shop in the temple, so to speak, healing people and teaching them about God. And people gathered around and they were all listening to him. However, even while he's teaching, the priests and the scribes and the elders are plotting how to get rid of him. So they began to ask this series, and we'll deal with this over the next several weeks, this series of controversial questions that, it, that held out the possibility of somehow tripping Jesus up, getting him to say something that went against the law, or something that would damage his credibility with the people. And so now his opponents decide to test him on the issue of authority. But remember, 
They're really just trying to find a way to trap him so they can arrest him. They're plotting against him. Ultimately, they want to destroy him. We see that at the very end of our passage today in verse 12. It says, and they were seeking to arrest him. The very next verse, the first verse for next week, it says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And then in Mark 14, we'll see, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. We actually see that throughout the Gospels. Uh, Matthew 22, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And Luke 19, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. So, their sort of ulterior motive has been exposed. They're not just trying to trip Jesus up and get him to say something dumb. They want to turn the people against him, arrest him, and ultimately kill him. That's what they want to do. The scripture tells us that a number of times. So what authority did Jesus claim? Now, those who had walked with Jesus for the last three years, they know he's more than just a poor boy from Nazareth. He taught with authority. He healed with power. He argued with clarity against the religious leaders. And in many ways, the Gospel of Mark, the entire book, has one point. Who is this guy? The crowds, the disciples, the religious leaders, even Jesus himself, they're all absorbed in answering this question. Who is this guy? Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is grounded upon two displays of authority. First, this triumphal entry. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey amidst the adoration of the crowds. And then second, the cleansing of the temple. He drove out the money changers. And the scriptural reality, sort of the big uh, biblical picture here, is that the true temple has come to the temporary temple. Jesus' cleansing act signals both the coming destruction of Herod's temple and his sovereign role as the temple of his people. So for a few glorious days in this last week, we have the new temple, Jesus, who comes and sits in the old temple, the building in Jerusalem. And he teaches with marvelous authority. Now, he's always done this. We saw this at the very beginning of his ministry when the people heard him for the very first time uh, back in Mark chapter 1. It says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So how does he get away with usurping their authority? Who is this guy? So the religious leaders go into action. Jesus' assertion of authority now in the temple isn't going to go unchallenged. So they kind of put their heads together, and then they, they show up, they sweep down on Jesus. Verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, it's important you notice all three groups, came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? For who gave you this authority to do that? Specifically, they want to know what authority lay behind his triumphal entry and his cleansing of the temple and his right to teach in the temple. 
Now, the teachers of religious law, or the scribes, they have authority. They have studied with the rabbis. They have qualifications and credentials. They are essentially the seminary professors of their day. And the priests have authority. They have inherited the position of uh, priest going all the way back to Aaron and Levi. They're the leading ministers of their day. And the elders of the people have authority. Their age and experience had gained them leadership in the social and economic affairs of the community. And they're the leading elders of the day. And together, these three groups of authoritative people made up the ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. And they knew Jesus, he didn't have any formal training with the rabbis. He doesn't have a priestly lineage. He doesn't have the age and experience of the elders. So how does he get away with usurping their authority? Who is this guy? You see, derived authority is a major pillar of their system. The act of teaching was typically a tedious chain of citing different authorities. Rabbi Meir says, but Rabbi Judah says, but Rabbi Simeon also permits. If you remember, Jesus doesn't teach that way. He was the authority. We see that most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, so this repeated formula of, you have heard that it was said, talking about the scribes and the other teachers and, and priests. But I say to you, not rabbi so-and-so, but I say to you, and in that saying, he's claiming that his words were authoritative. Moreover, they have correctly assumed that no leader of Israel has been consulted about the correctness of Jesus' activities, much less given him their approval. They hoped, therefore, he'd be forced to admit this and would be discredited in the eyes of the people. And Jesus sees the trap, and he effortlessly puts this counter-question to them that they dare not answer. And look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And see, the, the big problem here, John was popular. Vast crowds of people had received his baptism of repentance as they confessed their sins. And we saw that all the way, again, all the way back to the beginning of the book, Mark 1. It said, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But the leaders refused to go. And John the Baptist confronts them. We see that in Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Luke tells us they just totally rejected the words of John, Luke 7. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, excuse me, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers 
rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So now we have the lawyers tossed in there too. My apologies, those of you who practice the legal arts. So we're amidst this crowd of people in the temple, and Jesus has confronted them with this question about John the Baptist. And they're thinking it, it's not going to be wise to deny that John's authority was from heaven. But if they said his baptism is from heaven, then they have to be admitting that they've sinned in rejecting his baptism. So with Jesus' answer or a question hanging heavy on him, these so-called know-it-alls have this very meek answer. They say, we do not know. And that's a failure of moral authority. Because if they truly believe Jesus was a fraud, it's their duty to tell the people, regardless of the personal cost to them. But they're opposing them for self-centered reasons. And so they just say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop just reversing the challenge that they had presented to him. He goes on to tell them a parable, which demonstrates, contrary to what the religious leaders thought in considering themselves to be an authoritative power, in reality, the powerful are reversed. So that's the second section, the powerful are reversed, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And Jesus tells this very pointed parable. It's hard to miss who he's talking about. I want to tell you anyways, but let's go ahead and read it first. Uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they just struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Those are pretty pointed words. And Jesus is telling this parable to let the priests and the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees know that he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what they're trying to do. He knows exactly what they're like. And they understood that as well. They got the point. The end of verse 12 says, they perceived he had told the parable against them. And they're not happy about it. Because the picture Jesus paints uses an image that everyone at the time would have understood. A vineyard 
representing Israel. Israel thought of itself as the vineyard of God. And there's a number of scriptures that make that analogy in the Psalms and especially in the prophets. The most famous is called the Song of the Vineyard and it's in Isaiah chapter 5. And there God describes, uh, Isaiah describes God's loving care for his vineyard. But that song ends with this verse, Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God had done everything to ensure that Israel would be fruitful. But Isaiah describes his disappointment with the vineyard because it only yielded bad fruit. And finally, Isaiah describes God's judgment of it and his mourning over it. And the vineyard-Israel connection is so much a part of their national identity that the very temple that Jesus is standing in uh, sports this richly carved grapevine. It's sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place. This vine had immense sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. So Jesus has everyone's attention as he begins this parable of the wicked tenants. But where Isaiah's song of the vineyard is about the failure of the vineyard, Jesus' parable is about the failure of the keepers of the vineyard, the wicked tenants, the leaders of Israel. And just to make sure he understood it, he made it an allegory with very specific meanings. And the symbolism is clear in the parable. The master is God the Father, the vineyard is Israel, the wicked tenants are Israel's leaders, the servants are the prophets, and the son is Jesus himself. And clearly its meaning is that God established Israel as his vineyard, put spiritual leaders, the tenant farmers, in charge of it, and he doesn't show his presence for a long time. And the longer God was gone, the more remote and powerless uh, he seemed. And so the tenant farmers begin to assume that his absence is permanent. And this abusive attitude festered in the leaders that the vineyard, the people of Israel, were in fact their possession. And all this is done, Jesus said, because Israel's leaders had become so successful from the fruits of the vineyard that they wanted to keep the harvest for themselves. And finally, the outrage in the parable peaks with the ultimate violence in verse 6. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And of course, the son they kill is Jesus. Don't miss the huge distinction that Jesus made between himself and the religious leaders. The leaders were tenants, but he's the beloved son and heir. Jesus is the author of this death parable. You could call it his prophetic autobiography. Now, he has foretold this very thing three times in the book of Mark. Most recently, near the end of Mark chapter 10. He said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Three times he's told them that. Three times Frank Wong preached that passage to you. He was not happy he got the same thing all three times. It didn't apparently bother me. Um, so the parable teaches us two things about God's presence and about God's patience. He's long-suffering. He puts up with this for a long time. But his patience does have its limits. God's judgment comes only after showing this incredible patience to his people. There is a terminal severity awaiting the unrepentant leaders. Verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now this is partly realized in the national judgment that took place at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But the ultimate reference is to the eternal judgment for Israel's leadership and the reassignment of leadership to a people who are mostly Gentiles. And that's recorded in the book of Acts. So there's this eternal peril in resisting Christ's authority. This isn't thought of as especially horrible to anyone who rejects Christ because they don't believe in it in the first place. But believers think of it as the most horrible thing. Why? Because we actually believe it. The penalty of rejecting Jesus' authority is damnation, incurring the wrath of God. And the parable forces us to ask the question, who is this guy? So the challenge to Jesus' authority is reversed. And the people who have power are going to lose it when their stewardship of the vineyard of Israel is reversed. And then finally we see their understanding of who's the real authority is reversed when their rejection is reversed. When their rejection is reversed, verses 10 through 12. The people were back quoting Psalm 118 on Palm Sunday. And now Jesus directs them back to Psalm 118, which we read as part of our responsive reading this morning. That's uh, not a coincidence. Uh, and he directs them specifically to Psalm 118, verse 22, where the stone becomes the cornerstone that's understood to be the Messiah. And so we read that starting in verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The builders here are not stonemasons. But those who are the builders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, builders is a popular image for leaders in Jesus' day. And Psalm 118 prophesied that the leaders of Israel would reject the stone, the Messiah, the Christ, who following his rejection would become the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone in the eternal temple of God. And the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone we see Jesus symbolized 
in his rejection and crucifixion, but then through his resurrection, uh, being our Savior. So authoritative is Jesus that he is the judgment stone for every person, culture, and nation of all history. Whether you fall on him or he falls on you, the result is the same, destruction. We see that in the parallel passage in Matthew 21. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the first function of the stone, bringing disaster to those who fall on it, is derived from Isaiah 8. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The corresponding function of the stone falling on some in judgment uh, when it falls on anyone it will crush him is derived from Daniel chapter 2, which describes the supernaturally sculpted rock that smashes to pieces the statue of gold, silver, bronze, and clay, representative of the world's kingdoms that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dreams. So our awesome risen Lord will return as a great crushing weight to judge the world. And his authority cannot be ignored. Our response to Jesus is everything. We will either rise or fall according to our faith or lack of faith in him. If we fall on him, he will fall on us, bringing eternal destruction to our souls. So for your own sake, I have to ask, is he your Lord? Is he your authority? Who is this guy? This parable is like no other that Jesus told. It's the only one that contains his own obituary. Imagine how he must have felt as he told it to his followers. As he told them and us of the faith that's waiting for him. Knowing full well that in a few days, the wicked tenants are going to throw him outside the city walls. Out of the vineyard. And have him killed. And he still told the story. He still shared the parable. And in this final warning, he still held out hope for faith and repentance. The parables come cloaked to us as prophets. God's word points out the sin in our lives that we're blind to. And we can receive and believe what it says, or we can reject it and refuse to recognize its authority over us. Now, if you remember in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, and this is after the resurrection, and Peter and John are going into the temple, and they get to the gates, and they're confronted by a crippled man who asks them for money. And he's a beggar, and he's expecting to receive something from them. And in my all-time favorite verse, Acts 3, 6, Peter says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And after healing the crippled man, Peter and John get arrested for healing the crippled man. I can think lots of reasons people should get arrested. Healing somebody doesn't make my list. 
But they get arrested and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, these same religious leaders who challenged Jesus in our passage this morning. And they give him essentially, uh, they give uh, Peter and John the same challenge that they had given Jesus. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 4. Apostle Peter lays that challenge before us, Acts 4, verses 7 to 12. And when they had set them in the midst of the Sanhedrin, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? By what authority? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Quoting Mark, quoting Psalm 18. But it's very pointed. He has this little phrase, and Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders. If you don't accept his authority, you can't expect others to accept his authority. You can't give what you don't have. Remember what Peter said? Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. <coughs> you can't give the good news of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ if you don't have it yourself. You can't call people to repent and believe if you don't repent and believe. You can't tell people about the Savior if you don't believe he's your Savior. The gospel is about receiving grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about coming to him in faith and repentance. It's about acknowledging him as the authority in and over your life. Is he the stone of offense that you're stumbling over? Or is he the cornerstone upon which your faith is built? Which is it? Who is this God? Ask yourself that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Help us to repent and believe the gospel. Help us to acknowledge the authority and lordship of Christ. Help us to come to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Help us to come to you in faith and repentance, bowing before our King, who loved us and lets us into his kingdom, his vineyard. 
Father, once again, we're thankful for your word, and especially for the revelation of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all that of which Scripture speaks. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever by faith. Let us see that. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand and join us in the closing song?
section one, you are dismissed.